Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is Terry Toppler and this is the podcast extension for ROI Show 533rd. Our guest today is John Brassard, author who will be talking to us about the St. Elizabeth's Fire of 1950. The history buff joining us is Rick Sweet. Rick, you get to start us off this time. Gee, thanks. <laughs> John, uh, you were talking in great detail about the carnage and the horror and the it's what I do. rack and ruin yeah. of, of this, this fire. The number of people who you said came out from the various neighborhoods and communities to help it do what they can, what was a community reaction uh, uh a month, a year, two years later uh, from this horrible event? Oh, they were horrified by it. I mean, it came out a little bit at a time, and they were very careful to... It was very easy on the surface to blame the Sisters of Mercy who ran the hospitals to just blame them. Oh, you didn't care about the patients. You didn't want to put in this fire stuff. And so that was what it was initially. And... Lester Schick and Othmar Mangles, who was the great name, isn't it? Uh, he was the fire inspector for the city of Davenport. And they were very critical of it. And you have to think, these guys were at the fire. They were the ones running into the building and pulling bodies out. So, I mean, they were pretty passionate about all of this. But they were also quick to point out these were well-maintained buildings. They didn't know. they The full impact of this wasn't realized on them. So, I mean, people and the sisters were horrified by it. They felt awful about it. They knew these people. They interacted with them every day. They were family to a lot of these people. And so the community at large took all of that into account. They were horrified by the fire. But they didn't really hold anybody accountable. Even Elnora Epperly, who was the one who started the fire, and as things came out and more and more was revealed, even the prosecutor, who was at first, we're going to send her up the river, we're going to seek the death penalty, we're going to get this person for doing this horrible thing. Once everything came out, she was a mental patient herself. This was a complete fluke. She was responding to her mental illness. She was very much not in her right mind. Even she started getting a pass. It's like, mm. we can't blame her fully. She wasn't in her right mind, literally not in her right mind. So there was it all, all the hate and discontent kind of washed out and it just became this big, sad tragedy. And it was, everybody felt sad about it. And then, okay, what can we do better? And that became more the focus instead of trying to blame any one person, any part of the institution, anything like that. Why did it take so long for the full story to come out? It didn't. It So, first of all, there was an investigation coming in and anything legal, they didn't want, the news media was everywhere. This is the biggest story in Iowa. They had state fire inspectors they had a couple federal people come out and they were going over the site with a fine-tooth comb they were investigating everybody that they could they investigated firemen they investigated there were people there there was uh they were from des moines and one of a friend or a family member was having some kind of procedure done at the hospital and they came out and they rushed out and were helping at the fire Mm -hmm. well they had seen and heard some things so they were inter they interviewed them And they wanted no detail left out. And like I said, they had a real good idea of what had caused the fire right away. They didn't want any of those details leaking out. They didn't want any conjecture. And so everything was kept very quiet behind closed doors. They were swore to secrecy for about, for as much coverage as it got in the newspapers, there was about a three or four day stretch in there where they were grabbing 
everything that they could because there was nothing on the fire. They couldn't, they didn't know anything about the investigation. This was literally under guard the entire time. And they took pictures of the guards. They congregated in the hallway. <laughs> they tried to talk to these people. There was a, uh, a doctor named John Sunderbrook. And he was a World War II veteran, he was a surgeon, he was a doctor, and he was a volunteer fireman. My mother-in-law is a doctor, as a matter of fact. No kidding. Yes. Oh, my God. Sunderbrook, yes. Well, he had heard the rumor that, you know, and he kept hearing this rumor. That it was this patient, we know their name, they keep confessing to the fire. And so he approached, uh, I think it was Lester Schick first, and told him, so I hear that this is it. And... He was a volunteer fireman. He knew these people. He was a prominent community member. And Schick just looked at him and, hey, are, are you looking into this? Yeah. And that was it. <laughs> he would not elaborate. And Sunderbrook actually went down to uh, Central Fire Station in downtown Davenport. That's where Schick's office was at. And Schick was out. Well, Mangles was in. Once again, wonderful name. And... <laughs> I wish my name was Othmar. Anyway, <laughs> how cool is that? Anyway, so he talked to him and, well, th told him the whole story, everything he heard, and Mangles told him, well, thank you for coming in, and we'll look into it. The next day, he comes to Sunderbrook's office out at Mercy Hospital, closes the door behind him, sits down. I need you to tell me everything you told me before, everything you heard, and wrote it down in detail. And then when they finally, finally got a hold of when uh, Elnora Epperly contacted, actually it was her husband contacted him, and she was in the background saying, I did it, I'll talk to you, to the state's attorney. And then they went and investigated that further, and the first word, they sent this investigator out, and she's sitting in this living room, never met these people before, doesn't know what to expect, and she looks at him smoking a cigarette, do I look crazy? I don't know you. <laughs> Which is kind of what he said, and he was kind of on his heels for a while, and then she, I'm the one that started the fire. And she elaborated, and everything mm. explained, and then they went, and they everything proceeded from there. Well, when she finally made her second confession, and they had all of these facts lined up, and everything, all their ducks in a row, mm -hmm. then they released it to the press, and then they started elaborating more. Mm. And of course, now it's, you know, what, 70 years later, something like that. You math it, I don't remember off the top of my head. But uh, all of the fire inquest records, because there was this extensive investigation, all those are on microfilm down at Davenport Public Library. Cool. You know, so you can sit and you yeah. can read firsthand what these people had to wow. say. So, John, can you give us a little background information for the time? So, this was January 7th, 1950. And we talked about the number of patients that had been admitted. Uh, so what was the process for patients to be admitted in 1950 to a sanitarium? I mean, was it by the state? Was it by family members? Um, how did it affect specifically women? Could their husbands admit them against their will? I mean, it's that was an it. older thing in general. And mm -hmm. some of those, it wasn't necessarily the case at St. Elizabeth's. You could kind of go all of the above there was a process i mean you had to be seen by a clinical psychologist uh the thing where you hear about husbands just admitting their wives for fun uh which did happen <laughs> i mean that was older times you know and so these are people and psychiatric medicine had advanced quite a bit while i did mention that they didn't have the drugs and things and some of the mm -hmm. treatments they were still using shock treatments 
And while it's horrific by today's standard, that was state-of-the-art back then. Yeah. You're talking 1930s, 1940s, they were still lobotomizing people and saying, yeah. this is because mm -hmm. they didn't have any other way to control violent patients. And obviously the lobotomization is not going into that. That's a whole nother rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. But when you're going into that, that was horribly mistreated. However, there were patients that they had no other way to treat them and they were violent mm -hmm. and they lobotomized them and it's horrific and it would never even be considered today. It was like, that was a miracle almost. Shock treatments they had received, it started with insulin shock. And then after World War II, because insulin was in such high demand, they got rid of that. They found that shock treatments were a lot cheaper and a lot more feasible. And so they went to that and they had done scientific studies on it. And they said, we have seen improvement in some people with it. So they tried it. With Elnora Epperly, she was admitted, and sometimes people were abandoned in these institutions okay. because think of somebody who's a low functioning autistic. They're just very autistic. There's nothing wrong with them. They're mentally ill or has an extreme case of Down syndrome. Their families didn't know how to take care of them. And in 1950, there was no support networks. There was nothing, no self-help lines you could go to. You could go to the hospital and they would say institutionalize them. And so that's where they would leave them because they wanted to treat them well. And the families didn't always treat them well. And they abandoned them in these institutions to better themselves. I mean, it's a fact of life. It's horrific. How many of these cases were there? We don't know. I mean, you can go through and you'd have to go through a case-by-case -case mm -hmm. basis. But the sisters took very good care of him, tried to get him state-of-the-art mental care. And unfortunately, shock treatments was state-of-the-art back then. And obviously, we've gotten away. The more we learn, we've gotten away from that. But they were really trying to do the best they could by these people. John, the St. Elizabeth's in 1950 burned to the ground. How old was the building? Oh, it was almost, uh, if it wasn't over 100 years old, it was... I take that back. It was coming up on 100 years old. I think it was like 60, 70 years old. So it was it was state-of-the-art uh, in the 1860s, maybe? Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I think it was built in, if memory serves, it was built in 1874. So it was, it was up there. And it was a great building then. It was very well-maintained, but it's like any other old building. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a question. I was going to put it in perspective. You know, the uh, now we have... Uh, you know, we have uh, baby cribs that the kid can't fall through the, the slats. We have sprinkler systems. Uh, we have adaptive cruise control on our cars, stuff like this. And you mentioned in the broadcast safety. The relevance is, is safety. Safety comes first. Uh, the perception in, in 1950, well, December 31st, 1949, the hospital was as good as you can get as far as safety and operation i'm not sure if it would be completely up to absolute modern standard because there were better hospitals being built with fire sprinkler okay. systems and these things but for an older building and you have to think a lot of these buildings they didn't want to build new they were had these great very 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 well maintained buildings that why spend the money to build a brand new building well they found out why but <laughs> You know, with all the renovations, if they would have put fire breaks in, if they would have put these things in, then St. Elizabeth's could theoretically still be standing today. There are older buildings standing in Davenport now. So, John, I guess I want to go back to, and it follows up on the safety issue, but what was considered the safety ratio of patients to staff members at that time? Because it sounded like Anna was the only one that was 
a staff member at the time of the fire that night? There was one other woman okay. that was, she, the one that I mentioned, she was staying in one of the back bedrooms and she woke up mm-hmm. and she got, she went out in the hallway. Well, she heard people shouting fire, fire, fire outside. She went out, hallways filled with smoke. And instead of going out and getting patients out of their rooms, she just shouted back, fire, everybody get out. And one patient came out and they got out. They went down this mm-hmm. kind of a back way out and they got out through the basement. A lot of people got out through the basement. But at the same time, she was heavily criticized later. Why didn't you go back in? Why didn't you do this? Mm-hmm. There was no safety standard for it. There was no evacuation procedure. There was mm-hmm. no real safety ratio. It was, well, one person is just making sure everybody's sleeping soundly, got enough blankets, nobody has any contraband, like, cigarette lighters and that was all it took there was one woman the woman that uh anna neil relieved and she offered to stay but neil was no i got it i'm good go home well we would like to thank our guest for this 533rd show john brassard author who talked to us about the saint elizabeth's fire of 1950 the history buff for today's show was rick sweet roi can be found at 9 30 p.m friday nights on kala radio or on the web at TuneIn.com. If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search. Click on the first icon and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. And you can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.